Arnie was the fastest, though. Wow. It's that youthfulness, Arnie. Still got it. At, at lifeguard speed. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this time to open the Word of God, to be able to just, uh, Lord, meet here uh, freely and comfortably and to have the blessed privilege, Lord, to be able to open your Word. And there is no, Lord, higher purpose on this earth that we could possibly give our attention to. No better thing that we could sow into our minds or our hearts or our ears to set before our eyes. We just thank you for your inspired, inerrant, eternal word that is spoken through the ages and has the life and the power to still speak to us today. So Lord, we came, we're here, and you said when we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. So, Lord, do that now through the Word of God. We pray, strengthen our bodies physically from this day and what it's entailed. We ask you to quicken us by the power of your Spirit in our mortal body. Help us to be alert and attentive and just able to receive what you would want to say to us. Sow the good seed of your Word deep into our soul and speak to us in personal ways, Lord. And we ask you, believing you will, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 9, if you'll turn there with me. Last time together we saw that really we begin a historical transition at this point with the nation of Israel as we now begin to move from the time of the judges to what will be called the time of the kings, which will now take us through a long period of time historically as we continue working our way through the Old Testament. It tells us that as Samuel was now getting older, this last judge of Israel, very godly man, uh, incredible character, loved the Lord, listened to the Lord, was a great spiritual leader for the people, and unfortunately his two sons uh, did not follow in his ways. Uh, and they were wicked, it seems. They were ungodly. They didn't have the same heart and spiritual interest that their father did, though they were raised in those ways. They exercised their free will to turn aside, it said, after dishonest gain and to pervert justice. And so the leaders of Israel, we saw in chapter 8, came to Samuel and said, you are getting old. We realize a transition needs to happen. Your sons don't walk in your ways which was a legitimate problem, but then the solution they proposed wasn't probably the best thing because they said, so what we would like you to do is make us a king like all the other nations. We want a central government. That's what seems to work for the ways of the world. That's their method of handling things. That's how they govern themselves. And rather than functioning probably as God would have intended them to continue as they had as a theocracy where they were ruled by God and that's really what the word Israel means it means governed by God and that was always what God's heart was that he would be their king that each person would live in submission to him individually and as well collectively that they would function in a way under the authority and rulership of God but they at this time were longing for the pattern of the world uh, and said, make us a king like the other nations. We want someone to go out that's visible to fight our battles for us and someone to give us a centralized government. A monarchy is basically what they're asking for. And when Samuel heard this, it says that he was greatly displeased. It grieved his heart, probably because no doubt he had the heart of God within him and he knew that this grieved the heart of the Lord. But the Lord, remember, said to Samuel, look, don't take this personally, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me, and they've rejected me throughout history. And this is just another indication of that same pattern being repeated again. So he said, listen, give the people what they ask for. But he said, show them what is going to be the behavior of a king who will reign over them. In other words, if they want this, give them what they desire, but make sure they walk into it with their eyes wide open. And let them be aware that if they're going to have a king and that is what they want, I'll give them their will. I'll grant them the permissive will of God. I'll allow them to have what they want rather than to have me rule over them. But let them know what that's going to entail. 
And Samuel then begins to describe to them how the king would extract taxes from them and take their sons and daughters for his servant and establish big government and that it would, in a sense, hinder their freedom as well as uh, other things in their lives and it would take their finances and they would be ruled over as a result of having a monarchy in their lives. But we saw as we came to the end of the chapter 8, verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, No, but we will have a king over us. That's called demanding. It's never good to be demanding with God, let me just say. Never good. Certainly, especially if God's trying to steer you in the other direction. But you say, No, but we will have, rather than saying, Not my will, but your will be done. And here they say, no, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel, which was the messenger, really the representative of the voice of God. So this could basically say they refused to obey the voice of the Lord. No, we will have a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight in our battles. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice, make them a king. Give them what they want. Well, chapter 9 now begins to give to us the selection of the first king that God gives to the nation. And again, keep in mind here, God is giving the people their way. He's basically defaulting and giving to them what they desire. And we read throughout scripture times when God would give to people their way. Uh, and it says that he would give them their desire, but send leanness to their souls. And, and here basically God says, okay, if you want a king, then I'm going to give you the kind of king that you're after and the kind of king that you would desire and, and see how that works for you. And so here, as we come into chapter nine, we now see the appointment of the first king in Israel's history, this man named Saul. And it says in chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, and it says a mighty man of power, which would also indicate he was a man of influence, or we might say a man of wealth, a very affluent, uh, prominent individual, Kish was. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. And there was not, the Bible says, a more handsome person than he among all the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Again, the idea here, picturing, we would say tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, this was the Flavio in that day in Israel's history. This was the, the Bible says there, verse 2, the best looking, most handsome man in the entire nation. So keep in mind, this is the Spirit of God writing this. So if the Spirit of God's writing this, that seems to indicate, I mean, this guy apparently saw was very physically attractive. He was an individual who just had a dominating appearance. He was impressive in his stature. He was tall, dark, and handsome. We read as well from verse 1 that he comes from a very prominent and influential family, from a very wealthy family. So, so this is Saul's background and his pedigree prominent family comes from an affluent influential household uh, his father was a man of great power and wealth he's raised in that on top of it it says that he's tall dark and handsome he's just one of these individuals that when they walk into a room they would just instantly command respect because of their presence being such a, a strong thing an impressive presence and these were the characteristics that he had that made him very appealing and impressive in the physical and again this would kind of be the person that if there were a, a, a you know a, a a magazine of the world's most influential kings this would kind of be one of the people you would want someone who's like this great pedigree noble character i mean all the features of charisma and impressiveness and i mean this would kind of be the guy that everybody would want to say now that's a king that's the kind of guy we would want for our king, someone who looks as impressive outwardly as this individual does. He seems to have the whole package on the outside as you look at him. Ultimately, we'll see the problem is, is that Saul has a lot of great characteristics, but he doesn't have a lot of character. 
long-term on the inside, and that becomes his downfall, we'll see, as we go forward with Saul. But he has a good start, and uh, someone who no doubt started well, the Bible proves to us, but just didn't finish well, which can always be something we have to be careful of. So it says, verse 3, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please, take one of the servants with you, go and arise, he says, and go and look for the donkeys. So here's what begins to happen. God's going to unfold this whole plan that brings into connection Samuel the prophet, who is to anoint the first king of Israel and acknowledge and sort of identify the first king. And Saul, who's going to be God's selection for the first king to give to the people according to their desire to have a king rule over them. And look how this begins to happen because these are all pieces of what we call the providence of God. Providence of God, you know, a compound word, you know, pro in advance, you know, video or, or proviso to be able to see in advance where we get the idea of video to see in advance. God, because he sees everything in advance, orchestrates present day circumstances to work in conjunction with all the circumstances necessary to get us to the path and the place that God ultimately wants us to be because of what God's going to do down the road. This is what the providence of God is, is that God already knowing what he's going to do 10 years from now or even six years from now or one year from now is working at this very present moment in ways often which we're completely unaware of but because he's a personal God a God of details who has this amazing ability to connect dots and has this all mapped out is working in everyday circumstances in people's lives right now by his providence to make everything line up and the outline to all come together so that people end up being in the right places at the right times for the right situations, for God's circumstances to come to pass and his plans to unfold. And what a wonderful thing to be able to have that awareness as a child of God and to have that assurance. I mean, that gives great comfort in some ways to our lives that if we are not smart enough to do anything else other than to just follow the Lord. And, and, and to me, that's, that's very comforting because I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I realize it, but, but simple well, okay, Jesus says, follow me. Okay, Lord, I can do that. I know how to follow a person. And that if I just follow Jesus, I may not have the, you know, the entire map from here to there. I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow or a week from now. But if I just follow Jesus, he will get me to where I need to be, when I need to be, for why I need to be there and bring to pass all those things. And the Bible says to us that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And what a wonderful thing to be able to have that assurance. And here, Saul, completely oblivious, we'll see as we read through these things, that God's actually orchestrating these things, working on both ends for him and Samuel. And how does it begin, verse 3? A couple donkeys get lost. <laughs> So God causes a couple donkeys. I mean, you can't talk about a more natural, everyday, mundane experience. I mean, this is a farm boy and the donkeys wander off and his dad in his overalls, Mr. Kish says, Saul, take one of the one of the hired hands, take one of the servants. The donkeys got away. They're just, they, they're maybe not, and, and take some, and go find the donkeys. And just an everyday experience, again, but this is often the ways that God works. He uses natural, ordinary events, even sometimes natural and ordinary problems to be the things that are like the catalysts in our lives to get us to do some of the things that we do, to direct our soul. Sometimes God will allow a problem to direct us in a path that he wants us to go in or to move us in a different direction, to get us even moving sometimes rather than sitting where we are, to push us in a direction he wants us to go and, and have us get to the right destination. So he gives this instruction and verse 4 says, So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim, him and the servant, through the land of Shalisha, but they didn't find them there. So then they passed through the land of Sha'alim and they were not there. And then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. So this was not a very successful process initially. And you can imagine in his humanity, he's probably thinking, this is getting really frustrating. He's going to town to town. He's looking for the donkeys. But take notice here again that 
we see some elements of Saul's character. Saul was obedient to his father. He was a helpful man. He was responsible. He was hardworking. I mean, he didn't just give up the first town on the pursuit for the donkeys. He kept going from location to location. And he was just an individual who was willing to do humble work. I mean, you can't get more humble work than looking for lost donkeys. And, and, but he's willing to just do humble tasks uh, and to be faithful in it. He just keeps going from location to location. I mean, certainly some good qualities in this man's life, but the pursuit ends up kind of coming up empty-handed and uh, he's sensitive to the concern that his father may have. So verse 5 says, when they came to the land of Zuf, which is quite a ways off now from where their homeland was, Saul turns and says to the servant, come, uh, let us return lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Take notice, Saul also was sensitive to wanting to do what would honor his father. And he seems he had a decent relationship with his father in such a way he understood the love of his father and he felt in his mind, since we're not having any success, perhaps it's best to just let go of this pursuit my dad's probably more worried about us now than he is the donkeys. We've been gone so long. I have a prominent father anyway. He's a man of great wealth and power and influence. He can probably purchase new donkeys. Dad's more worried about us probably now than he is the donkeys. We, we should probably head back home. And in his mind, he's about to just cut the pursuit short and head back home. In verse 6, the servant, the unnamed servant, prompts him with a suggestion. He said to him, verse 6, look now. There is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man, and all that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. So they're lacking direction. They're lacking fulfillment of what they're trying to do, and, and, and they don't know what they should do from this point forward. And at this point, Saul's kind of becoming almost doubtful in the whole process. He's thinking, this just, this just isn't going to work. It's never going to pan out. And he's ready to just sort of pull off. And notice, it was this unnamed servant here who prompts his heart to, if you would, sort of believe that God would be able to help them with their problem, even though they haven't been able to solve it themselves. He mentions here in verse 6 this idea, look, right here in this city, right where we happen to be, there's, there's a man of God in this city. And it's known that he has such a relationship with God that whatever God tells him, he shares with people and it comes to pass. He has a direct connection with God, a strong relationship, and he's God's representative. And perhaps he's saying we should trust that he could show us which way to go, that we could get direction from God through this man, through this man of God or prophet that's in this town. A man in contact with God could show them the way to go. And I look at this in verse 6 here, and I think, you know, here's this unnamed servant prompting someone to believe that God can help and that God can provide direction and that they should look to that. And I think, what a beautiful picture in some ways of really what the Holy Spirit does, the unnamed, if you would, kind of the invisible representative of the Lord, who is the one who at times when we're perhaps prone to just doubt or give up or give in or just think there's no way, it's not going to work, that, that the Holy Spirit in that still small voice, that invisible person of God dwelling within us is the one who prompts our hearts and says, look, God can show us the way. You should believe. Don't give up yet. Don't give in yet. And sometimes it's the Spirit of God who's the one who's prompting us to believe when we're willing to just kind of give up on a situation. And it's the Spirit of God who prompts our heart to believe God can help with the problem. Let's not give up because God can help you with the problem. And I think the Holy Spirit, as God's representative, often is the one who does that in a very similar way to this servant here. So he makes this recommendation. Let's go see this man. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul and said, Look, I have here a, one, hand, a, one fourth of a shekel of silver, a small amount. I, I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. 
And it says, verse 9, formerly in Israel, when a man went to, notice, inquire of God, this is what they're doing to go to this man. They actually are seeking to inquire of God. He spoke thus, come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet, the Bible tells us, was formerly called a seer. And the idea is then because what the term represents. They were, they were individuals who were able to see things that others were not. And the reason they could see things others could not was because they were hearing from God and God sees everything. And so God would convey his word to the prophets. The prophets would speak the word of God and, and in a sense be able to give to people direction, to share with people what they needed to know because God could see what they could not and God could see what they needed to know. And so a word could come from the Lord in their lives so prophets used to be referred to as seers and this seems to be a transition historically when they then began to be referred to more regularly as prophets but the servant here again has to kind of encourage Saul because Saul's hesitation is he says you know, I kind of feel bad I mean if we're going to go and again not that there was some sign hanging outside Samuel's door for free advice it's going to cost you know X that's not the idea here the idea is out of gratitude, out of respect for the servant of God, uh, they just wanted to bring some form of appreciation to the worker of God and to give remuneration in some sense. And it wasn't a required thing, but they felt that would be right and respectful. And so Saul's hesitant because it seems they have little to bring. And the servant's trying to nudge him and encourage him because Saul says, look, we don't have anything left. He says, verse seven, what do we have to give? Uh, what do we have? And I look at this again and I think what a beautiful picture in some ways this becomes of a recognition of how to learn how to inquire and receive of God because that's what they were looking to do to inquire and receive of God even when you know that you're completely empty handed and it's just all about grace. Because sometimes we make the mistake to think that the only way we can inquire of God for direction or help for our problems or whatever we need to receive from the Lord is that somehow we have to, we have to barter with God. And, and, and may not necessarily be, well, I'm paying off God in the sense of giving God a form of money, but sometimes we, we think in order for God to act or answer or help that somehow we have to bring something to earn or to receive what God would want to do for us when the reality is that's such a contradiction to what grace is. Grace is about understanding I'm empty-handed, I have nothing to give, and I have everything to receive. And recognizing that this is the nature of God and this is the way that really we are to understand God's nature and approach him in a sense like verse 7 to come before God saying God we're here to inquire of you but what do we have? Nothing. Empty handed we come Lord what do we have? No nothing to bring to you but our hands are empty. You know, I often think of, of how wonderful it is really when we worship and we lift our hands to the Lord. You know, part of the idea of that is, is, is Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm empty handed. I, I need you, God. I, as we're worshiping the Lord, do you see, Lord, I'm empty handed. I need you to supply as God uh, in my life the help or the assistance that I need. So they come now to inquire they show up and it says verse 10 watch what happens and Saul then said to his servant oh, well well said come let us go so they went to the city where the man of God was of course this is Samuel and as they went up the hill to the city they met some young women going out to draw water so they said to them is the seer here and they answered and said to him yes there he is just ahead of you imagine that hurry now for today he came to the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes. They would wait for him to come and it seems kind of bless and give thanksgiving over the sacrifice as they were gathering for a communal meal in time of worship. Because he must bless the sacrifice, they say. Afterward, those who are invited will then eat. Now, therefore, they encourage him, go up. For about this time, you will find him. So again, take notice what's happening here. As the Lord's ordering and directing things, talk about God working on both ends. It says that the women tell Samuel and his, excuse me, Saul and his servant, the man you're looking for just got here today. The exact same day they got there. 
Now, what have they been doing? Journeying this town, that town, this town, that town, this town, that town. And lo and behold, on the same day that Samuel showed up for that sacrifice, that sort of annual gathering time when he would come and he would bless the meal for the people before they would partake, lo and behold, they just so happen to roll into town on the exact same day that Samuel happens to be there that one day because God wants these two lives to intersect. Again, no coincidence whatsoever. That's called divine appointment. That God works on both ends and gets two people to the same place at the exact same time for a higher purpose for which he intends so that these two could meet each other for the purposes God intends. And you just have this very interesting indication. So they hurry up, you'll find him before he goes up to bless the sacrifice. So verse 14 says, they went up to the city and as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out towards them. Divine appointment on his way up to the high place. Again, God, what's he doing? He's controlling circumstances. God's controlling timing, that all these things connect at the right moment and in the right ways. And listen, the Bible tells us in Malachi that we serve a God who changes not. The Bible also tells us, we'll see in the book of James, that, that, that God does not show partiality to people. And, and, and so the same God who has not changed is not partial as well to anyone in all of time in history and he doesn't give special favoritism to anyone the Bible teaches which means guess what in your life and maybe it's just looking for some dumb lost donkey in your life God is orchestrating your circumstances and the timing of things in your life and putting pieces together and causing things to come to pass and oftentimes we're not even aware that he's doing it and yet, what a wonderful consolation to know the same God in our life at times is coordinating your timing of things, the circumstances of your life, working on both ends. He was working in Samuel's life and he was working at the same time in Saul's life and the two of them didn't even realize these things were coming to pass for this day. Now, Samuel was a little bit in the know because he had a relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 15. It says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear... The day before Saul came. So Samuel had an awareness what was going to happen the next day, though he was there for just an, an annual kind of scheduled feast. The Lord had told him in his ear. That's interesting. How did God do that? Spoke a word into his ear. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him commander over my people Israel. In other words, he's going to be the king that they asked for, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, and Saul would be used to help in that way. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So God, in advance, notice it says here, tells Samuel the day before that tomorrow the one who you're going to announce and recognize as king is going to come into the town and you're going to meet him. So what is God doing here? He's giving advance insight advance awareness to his servant what was coming what he was going to do and really even exactly when it would come to pass and how it would happen the whole purpose was that he might be prepared to fulfill the will of god to walk in his ways and sometimes in our lives the lord may for his purposes and for his designs whisper something into your ear or speak something to you if you have a heart to want to obey and be used by God he may speak something into your ear and say listen this is what's about to come to pass and he doesn't tell us so that somehow we can feel we're super spiritual or show off to other people he tells us for one exclusive reason because he's an intimate God and he wants us to know it's him when he's working and he wants us to be ready and to be prepared. And he doesn't tell us things just so we can, wow, God gives me insight. No, he tells us so that we can obey and know God told me this was going to happen. God told me that tomorrow I was going to meet the individual that I'm supposed to meet and, and that I could therefore recognize this is the one that God told me I was supposed to meet. So verse 17 says, when Samuel then saw Saul that day, look what it says, the Lord said to Samuel, there he is. In other words, that's the one. There's the king. 
This is the one, the man of whom I spoke to you, and this one shall reign over my people. So God gave to to Samuel here uh, really a, a word to identify this is the right person you've been waiting for. There's the right one. That's the individual. And, and let me just say, I, I know this is in relationship to a king, but if in some way God is looking to connect you to a right person, maybe it's even in a marital connection, how wonderful when God says, there she is, there he is, that's the right one. You know, I've talked to couples before. I've had my own experience as well in marriage. And, and what, I mean, that, that's a pretty important thing. Just like who's going to be the king. That, that's a pretty important thing. So I think if we're willing to listen, God's willing to make it pretty clear. There's a lots of people. That's the right one. <laughs> that one right there. And, and here God lovingly and helpfully tells Samuel, he doesn't want him to mess it up. So he says, Samuel, I'm identifying to you very clearly that is the right one. That's whom I spoke to you about. This is the one I've selected for this purpose in your life. Verse 18, and Samuel drew near in the gate and said, please tell me where's the seer's house? So uh, Saul's asking still. He doesn't realize that Samuel is the prophet and the seer yet. They haven't formally met. They're just connecting now. And Samuel said to him, verse 19, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and tell you all that's in your heart. Imagine hearing that tomorrow. I'm going to tell you everything that's in your heart. I, I know what's in your heart. And it must be like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. How can you see what's going on in my heart? Well, he couldn't, but God could. God sees what's going on in the heart. And so therefore he says, I'm going to tell you tomorrow, go up to the sacrifice. He then says to him, verse 20, but as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, and I'm sure Saul at this point went, huh? How'd you know about the donkeys? And all of a sudden now what's happening? This is, this is the word of knowledge coming forth. God is giving knowledge to Samuel about something he could not know otherwise other than God revealed it to him. And so he tells him, tell him those donkeys. Don't worry about them. They've already been found. Relax. Go enjoy the meal. Don't worry about the donkeys anymore. They've been found three days ago. Do not be anxious about them for they've been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you? And on all your father's house, in other words, he's in a sense announcing to him now, you're looking for donkeys. And the reality is you are what all of Israel is looking for. In other words, he's trying to begin to indicate and announce to him at this point here that in all honesty, he is what all Israel has been desiring and that he has been selected for fulfilling the desire of Israel. You're what all Israel is desiring. You have been selected to fulfill their desire for the nation. The idea is to become their king. But when Saul heard this, he answered and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest, which was true of the tribes of Israel and the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? So this is humility and modesty. Shows you that Saul didn't start out very proud and, and arrogant. And initially, he, he had a, a sense of his insufficiency. He felt very insignificant. He says, whoa, I think you got the wrong guy here. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, that's the smallest tribe. And on top of that, my family. I mean, we're the most insignificant people in all the area of Benjamin. Why would I be selected for anything of importance? He's thinking to himself here in verse 21, why would God select me for anything? Why would God, uh, you know, see any value in what I could contribute? What could I do of value? This is his heart attitude. And this is often a right heart attitude when someone is about to be used by God, when they recognize, why would God ever pick me? Why would he use me? What can I do of value to help his purposes or his people? And this is the modesty of the, the, the heart of Saul at this point. So verse 22, Samuel then took Saul and his servant, brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor. So he puts them in the prestigious, honorable spot of the feast which about 30 people were attending. And then Samuel said to the cook, hey, bring out that portion which I gave you, of which I told you set apart. So they bring out that, that prime cut of meat, 
that I told you, cook, to set aside because there's an important guest coming. Bring it out now. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. You are special. You're honored. Eat. For until this time, it has been kept for you since I said I invited the people and Saul ate with Samuel that day. And then verse 25, when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on top of the house. And then they arose early and it was about the dawning of the day. So it's early in the morning. And Samuel called the Saul on top of the house. That many times is where they would rest. Again, flat roofs. That's why he's up on the top of the house. It was like a patio area in that culture. So the breeze could come through. It was often cool. And he said to him at the dawning of the day, get up, get out of bed, wake up, he says, and get on your way. Get up and get out of here. <laughs> your time's done here. Get up and keep going. And Saul rose, both of them went outside, he and Samuel, and as they were going down the outskirts of the city, Samuel then said to Saul, tell your servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here a while, he says, that I may announce to you the word of God. So what does Samuel do? He wakes them up, he's escorting them out of town, and as they get sort of to the edge of town, he makes a request for a time of, of privacy together with Saul, and he says, tell your servant to go on ahead. He requests a private meeting to do what? Inform him of the word that God wanted to speak to him about his life and what God wanted to say to him personally. And I think it's a beautiful picture there of, listen, let your servant go on, you wait, you sit still because there is a personal word that God wants to say to you. But in order for you to hear the word of God, the word that God has for you, you have to stop and sit still. Stand here, sit still. Your servant can keep moving, but you got to stop and cease activities so that you can have attention to hear the word that God wants to say to you. And sometimes in our lives, we have to in the same way as this, kind of wait upon the Lord. Sometimes we need to be willing to stop, to stand still for long enough to hear the word that God might want to speak to us. Whether it's just in our personal devotional time, stopping and sitting still in the midst of every day's busyness to hear the word that God might want to speak to us personally. And sometimes, maybe in this case, if it's something really major and important. This was a major and important event, a life-changing experience. And in order for Saul to hear what God wanted to say to him, he had to wait upon the Lord. And if perhaps you're in need of hearing God's direction about something, hearing what word God has for you, maybe the first place to begin is, is to just stop and to give God time to sit still and to wait and let God speak to you when he can have your full attention and no one else is around. There's sort of just a private time between you and the Lord. So the servant goes on. He wants to announce the word of God in verse 1 of chapter 10. says, And then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. Now, these were indications of anointing. And as he's the man of God, the representative of God, kissing him would indicate the favor of God is upon you. I'm blessing you. And they understood in Israel what oil dumping over your head meant. It meant you've been anointed for something. The priests were anointed. From this point forward, the kings would always be anointed. The oil on the head was symbolic. Oil was of the Spirit of God. The idea is it was a symbolic indication of what God had already done. God has anointed you with His Spirit. God has set you apart and put His favor upon you. He says, is this not becomes, verse 1, the Lord has anointed you as commander over his inheritance. He's chosen you to be the king. He's chosen you to be the commander-in-chief over his people. And he's telling them this oil is just a symbolic indication, he's saying here, of what God already has done. He's already anointed you with his favor. And verse 2, when you've departed from me today, he says, you will find, look what he does now, two men by Rachel's tomb. In the territory of Benjamin in Zelzaza, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? 
And then, verse 3, you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread. This is pretty specific. And another carrying a skin of wine, just in case you want to make sure. A lot of details. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. And after that, you shall then come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you've come to that city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instruments and a tambourine and uh, a flute and a harp before them. And they will be prophesying. They're coming down from a worship service and they're worshiping and prophesying and praising God in the spirit. And then verse six, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy together with them and be turned into another man. So here's what God graciously does for Saul. He's announced to him, you've been chosen and anointed by the Lord to be the commander in chief, the king of Israel. And like you and I, we hear the call of God. And the first thing we typically do is say, how do I know? I mean, how do I know if God's really called me? How do I know if that was really God? And what God does here is in verse 2 to 6 is he gives three very specific things to do what? To confirm that it's God. He says, first of all, in verse 3, as you're walking, when you get to the area of Rachel's tomb there, he says, you're going to meet some men and they're going to come up to you. Total strangers. Hey, by the way, those donkeys. <laughs> How do you know about the donkey? The donkeys. Yeah, the donkeys you've been looking for. Well, your dad's more worried about you than he is. And, and, and as that would happen. So, Wow. Just like he said that it actually happened. That's a confirmation. And then he says, and then as you journey a little further, he mentions there in verse three, he says, you're going to come to the terebinth tree in Tabor, and then you're going to find three men and they're going to come up to you with provisions and they're going to give you some food and resources. He says, take it. You're going to need food and provision as nourishment for your body. And, and then he says, thirdly, you're going to move on a little further. And when you're in the Philistine territory, you're going to meet some prophets coming down from a hill, having a worship service and prophesying. And when that happens, the spirit of God's going to fall upon you. And you're going to, in the spirit, start prophesying together with them and having a spiritual experience that you've never had in your life before. And what's being described here, as I said, is how basically three confirmations to verify that this was God's will. Aren't you glad that God is so compassionate that he not only at times tells us what to do, but then he confirms it a few times to assure us, to give us a sense of confidence, this really is the Lord. And he has a way to continue to just kind of confirm it again and again to give us that indication. And, and here we have being exercised by Samuel, as I mentioned earlier, what is called the word of knowledge, the spiritual gift mentioned in the New Testament of the word of knowledge. He is telling him specific things that there's no way a human being could know in their natural ability. The only way Samuel could say these things and know these things of future events and details is how? Is if God, who knows all things, the God of knowledge, gave him supernatural awareness by putting that knowledge into his head. This is what the word of knowledge is. It is a supernatural infusion by God of giving a person knowledge about something that they could not know otherwise naturally unless God had told them directly. But keep in mind, God knows everything. There's nothing God can't see. There's nothing that God doesn't know. So it is not beyond God who knows all things if he chooses to, to say, I'm going to take this knowledge that I know and I'm going to put it into the mind spiritually, supernaturally of one of my servants and impart to them miraculously something they could not know. That's the word of knowledge. When God gives revelation or awareness about things that a person could not know naturally, but only by God giving them that awareness and revelation. That's called the word of knowledge. It's one of the gifts of the spirit we see operating in the Bible. And here we see it operating in Samuel's life. And notice the three things that were confirmations. It really was assuring at the same time not only this was God, but it also was assuring Saul important things he would need to know. In verse 3, he's being assured, listen, God can solve all your problems. What was his problem initially? 
the donkeys. Lost donkeys. He tried and tried and tried and tried and he couldn't fix the problem. He couldn't solve the problem. Who solved the problem for him? God. God found what he lost. He's looking, I can't find the donkeys. You don't have to find I know where they are. I'm God. <laughs> might help with your keys once in a while. I know I do that. So, Lord, where are my keys? You know, my wife knows where everything is in the house. Sometimes I think she has way more contact with God than I do because of that. But I just, there are times when, when I said, Lord, you know where this is at. Where's it at? Or whatever the problem may be. Listen, whatever it may be, God can solve all our problems. God can solve our problems. And oftentimes we're, we can't fix them and God says, I've already, I already took care of your problems. And this would be good for Saul to learn. God could solve his problems because one of Saul's problems is he would try and take matters into his own hands later on. That's how he gets into trouble. The other thing he was realizing here in verse 3 was that God can supply whatever he needed. They were out of provisions, right? Oh, we don't have anything to bring to the prophet, to the seer. We don't have any money. They were out of provisions. They had to travel all the way back home. What does God do? He sends some total strangers. Three people come up and they say, hey, here's a few loaves of bread. You, you look like maybe you could use some food. Random strangers. God can supply all of our needs. He knows what we have need of. The Bible tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. God can supply what we need. And the other thing we see as well here in verse 5 and 6 is that God also wants us to be empowered by his spirit because he says these prophets are going to come down the hill and what's going to happen, he says, verse 6, is the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you're going to start prophesying and be turned into another man. This was something that Saul needed to learn as well, which he didn't do very well with either, is that God wants us to be empowered by the Spirit for our service and whatever he asks for us to do, not to strive to do things in our own effort or energy or charisma or talent, but to let the Spirit of God empower us. And verse 6 here, I think in the Bible, in this text, is a beautiful picture of what we often refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where he says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The idea is the Spirit of God coming upon a person's life to bring them under the powerful control of the Spirit, under the powerful influence of the Spirit, being baptized or the coming upon a experience of the Spirit just resting heavily upon a person's life to control them. And what are the results of that, of the Spirit coming upon a person's life? It's for two purposes. We see here specifically for Saul, it's for effective service so that he could be spiritually influential because he then begins to prophesy and speak the word of God. This isn't something he could do on his own. And any form of spiritual service, we have to be under the power and the influence of the spirit to be effective spiritually. And this is one of the reasons for, listen, the baptism of the spirit of God. For wanting the spirit of God, not just to indwell you. Yes, as Christians from a New Testament sense, we understand. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you and I. We're sealed with the Spirit. We have the Spirit working within us. He dwells within us. But the Bible also teaches, Jesus talks about, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the most parts of the earth, to be effective spiritually, to come under the influence of the Spirit, to become under the control of the Spirit so you and I are effective spiritually. That we can have an impact in a spiritual way. Here we begin to prophesy, speaking the word of God. And as well, notice verse 6 also says he would be turned into another man. Again, another thing that happens when the spirit comes upon a person's life is they become changed. Powerful transformation starts to happen. They begin to become a completely different person. I love just the way the Holy Spirit writes that out. The spirit will come upon you and you will be turned into another man. Turned into a different person. I don't know about you, but I look at that and I think, man, I need that. Lord, I need that. That is something that I have need of in my life and to recognize that this is part of what comes with receiving the Spirit upon our life in this powerful way. So look as it goes a few more verses and let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You know that God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal. And he says, surely I'll come down to you 
to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifice of peace offerings. Seven days, Samuel says, you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. And look at verse 9. And so it was when he turned his back to go from Samuel, he's now departing from him, that God gave him another heart and all those things came to pass that day. And when they came to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Notice, and the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all those who knew him formerly, they knew who Saul was, this farm boy, that indeed, as he prophesied together with the prophets, the people said, what is this? Upon the son of Kish, is Saul now among the prophets? And a man answered and said, but who is their father? And therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? So as this experience happened and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was turned into another man, it says that people said, who is this? This isn't the same person. We knew him before. Again, what is the Bible indicating? When the Spirit of God comes upon a person's life, something changes. A dynamic is infused into their life where they become a very effective person spiritually. The influence that they have spiritually upon the lives of others is increased. And who they were formerly begins to change and transform because there's a greater control of the Spirit of God upon their life. And here, I love this description as it's so evident that something happened in Saul's life as the Spirit came upon him. I love how verse 9 records as well that as he turned to walk away, that God gave him another heart that day. God gave him another heart. The idea is that God just changed his outlook. God changed his attitude. You know, this is not a, a reference, of course, to spiritual conversion as we know it from a New Testament sense, but certainly the picture and the analogy is, is very beautiful. That God is a God who is able to give a person another heart. To give a person a different heart, a different heart attitude. And you know, sometimes in our lives, that may be one of the clearest indications that we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon my life? Lord, I need to be baptized with your spirit. I need your spirit to come upon me because, Lord, I need a different heart because my heart's not where I want it to be. I don't have the love of Christ that you want me to have. I don't have the compassion. I don't have a desire for ministry. And Lord, I don't have any capability to do what you want me to do. I feel powerless and weak and I lack love and I lack enthusiasm. So Lord, would you give me a new heart? And Lord, I can't do that for myself. But if you would pour out your spirit upon my life, something will happen. And it's for you and I to believe and for you and I to receive. Let's stand. Let's pray together. We'll close.